No scripture reading this morning, not that we won't be reading scripture this morning, just that uh, we're not doing that now. I'm actually going to start with something else. I wanted to show you uh, this to start with. So this is a letter um, written to Governor Lee, he's the the governor of Tennessee, um, from uh, the men who signed this, Um, and this is, um, all of these men are, are on death row, they're set to be I'm going to start it off on a really sad note, I guess, today. But they're all on, on, on death row. They're set to be executed in the next couple of years, each and every one of them, um, that signed this letter. And it's not a, it's not a letter to the governor about, about let us off. It's not, a letter, it's not a letter about look at our case again. It's simply a letter that asks the governor to come and pray with them before they are killed. Um, and if you aren't familiar with how sort of executions work, here's how it works. The, the, the governor, the night before the person is put to death, has to sign off on the death certificate, has to sign off on the execution order, um, which then goes through the, uh, through the process, and, and ultimately it is the, hand of the, it is the stroke of the pen that puts the person to death. Um, and the governor... Um, claims to be a, a follower of Jesus. I believe he's a Methodist. Um, and many of these men um, are actually followers of Jesus now, too. Many of them have been in prison for most of their lives, some of them 20, 30 years. One of them here you see is Pastor Kevin Burns um, right there. He's now become ordained on the whole, his, when he's been on death row for many, many years. Um, and they have, a, they have a, a church that sort of meets there. They do Bible studies. Um, if you're not familiar, sort of if you're new here and you're like, why are you talking about this? Um, so we understand that from the very beginning of church history, the revelation that, that Jesus is God and what God is really like um, has spurred on the very first churches, the early Christians for the first 300 years to absolutely um, shun um, capital punishment. They didn't take part in it. I know that that may be brand new information to many of you who grew up, who have been discipled in the way of American Christianity. Um, uh, But Christians historically and around the world, still to this very day, the vast majority of us are against destroying any any image of God in any form, from conception to death. Um, We are into preserving life on every front. Um, And so this is a huge issue. Um, Friday night, one of these men um, right here, Nick Sutton, was put to death um, by the electric chair. They still practice this, only in the Bible Belt. Um, and the vast majority of executions, 90% of executions actually happen right in the Bible Belt, where the, the most majority of Christians claim to, claim to be. Um, and so um, this is happening. And so I got, I got this letter from, uh, from Shane Claiborne. He's sending it around. He, um, if, if you're not familiar with Shane Claiborne, he's a, he's a theologian, a Christian, and an activist. Um, and so he sent me these postcards. Um, and these postcards, uh, it's, it's a small copy of that letter with all the signatures on it. Um, on the back, it has the address of Governor Bill Lee, Tennessee. And it has a place where you can write a letter and a place where you can put a stamp. And I did this first service, and I'm going to do this now as well. I'm going to leave these right here on the stage. Um, and my hope is that I want some of you to pray about this and think about this. Um, and I'm going to leave these here. I think there's probably 12 or 13 left. Um, and I'm looking for people that will do what several of us have already done, which is to take one of these cards, write a letter to your brother in Christ, 
begging him just to go pray with these men before he signs their death warrant. Um, it's literally the least he could do. Just go pray with his brothers before they're put to death. Um, and if you have an argument, if you would like to plead, if you would like to write some scripture, please do so. And then mail it quickly because this is happening. If you're not familiar with, um, you know what this is? I guess this is a good old-fashioned uh, invitational, right? Like, uh, do you know how the invitation started? It's, uh, it started during the abolition movement, actually. I know today we use invitations. The modern American churches uses invitations to raise your hand. Everyone bow your heads, close your eyes, raise your hand if you prayed that prayer. And then even if nobody raises their hand, they're like, thank you, I see that hand and that hand and that hand. <laughs> and I want you to come forward when we're done. And I've got like a pen with the church name on it and a little gospel of John. Um, that is sort of a, I guess it's a, it's sort of a, a stolen, appropriated version of the invitation. The invitation used to be during the Christian abolition movement when they were trying to abolish slavery. And uh, what they would do is they would, they would hold church service and they would preach against the evils of it. And at the very front, they, at the very end, they would say, now, after, now that we've prayed, I want you, well, let's all sing a song. And if you feel called to join us and become a part of this church, I'm calling you to come forward and sign your name on this list of people that are working against the slave trade and working to free people. This is how it actually started, but like all things, it gets taken and made just simply a afterlife theological thing. Um, we're engaging with the world here, as in heaven, now on earth. That's how it should be. I'm going to leave these right here, and I want some of you to pray about this. Um, and if they all get taken, and some more of you want to take part in this, um, maybe we can order some more. It took a while, so one of you actually might want to take one of these and, and uh, make more copies as well. Um, I'll email Shane and make sure that's not a problem. Um, I doubt he would care. Um, and here's the thing. Um, these are our brothers. The thing you may not realize is that we love to talk about... Um, uh, how your identity is not in the things that you've done. And we, we usually say this when people are really being successful. We say, don't find, your, don't find your identity in the things you accomplish. Don't find your identity in the, the work of your hands. Find your identity in Christ. And we tend to send that one way, up the ladder. But we don't send it down. We don't send it to the people at the bottom. And we look at them and we say, I know you've done terrible things and you regret them and you've repented of them. Your identity is not found in the things that you've done. This is the message here. The message of Jesus was... At the table, we all come and we bring the exact, we, we, we bring, we bring, we all bring our own experiences, our own level of holiness and spirituality, whatever, we all receive the exact same thing. Paul himself was a murderer, guilty of probably many murders, and God chose to use him to establish his church. Um, every one of these men is made in the image of God and has a role to play still, even from prison. And so we're asking the governor to pray. And that's all. And so with that, um, I'm going to move into today's sermon. We're doing something a little different today. Um, and the thing is, I've had a lot of conversations over the last few weeks uh, with, like, desperate people who are tired and exhausted. Uh, many of you who, uh, you know, the holidays sort of come to an end. And during the holidays, we try to make sure we have time to sit and rest and, and be present but once the holidays are over, we sort of take off running, right? Like, and it just goes farther and farther and farther and faster. Um, and it gets really, really busy. And so what happens is 
we overextend ourselves and we don't practice the spiritual disciplines. And so eventually, right around the end of February, you look into the eyes of a lot of people and you see a lot of exhaustion. Um, you see young mothers who are tired, fathers uh, who, who, are, um, who are exhausted. You see busy working singles. You see um, many of us feeling the exact same thing. And I felt some of that this week. There's a lot happening. Um, there is, I've been preparing for four services in the last two weeks um, that, that I'm leading and, and I've got post-grad work and, 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 and leadership classes and, and lecturing at like Southeastern, like all this stuff that I'm working on. And I realized halfway through the week that I actually didn't have enough time to deep dive exegetically study Acts 5. And I looked at the books, the stack of books over here that I need to read in the, in the empty place on the table where there's books after I read them should be. And there's not enough time. And I was thinking about it, and you have that anxiety that builds up, and then I realized, oh, I've already had this conversation with many people who are already feeling this. And so today, we're going to talk about Sabbath. And so we, uh, we, we I guess it kind of worked out that we gave some of the band the morning off, and uh, scripture readers the morning off. Like, uh, this is going to be a little different, okay? I'm going to leave this peaceful, serene scene rolling the entire time. And I'm going to talk about Sabbath, and you just stare at the leaves with the rain falling on them. And I want you to ponder a lot of the things that I'm talking about. Um, And so let's pray, and then we're going to talk about Sabbath, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that uh, right now you would be very present with us, encourage us. Let me be um, honest and truthful. Allow me to be pastoral. Allow us to all... um, receive the the filling that you have for us. Open our eyes to what you have us doing here. Open our eyes to who we are and the role that we play in your world. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. So Sabbath, what is it? I'm going to start way back with the Jewish context, of course, as I do. The Sabbath is a a 24-hour block of time in which we stop working, we enjoy rest, we practice delight, and we contemplate God. It's not complicated. There's not a lot to it. Um, In the ancient... Uh, Jewish world, the traditional Sabbath began on sundown on Friday night, and it ended at sundown on Saturday. They always practiced the exact same day of the week. They practiced the Sabbath then. Um, But as you move into the New Testament, you read the words of Jesus, and you see him explaining what the laws are actually for. And there's actually this place where Jesus' people are taking grain, and they're rubbing their hands together and, and getting the kernels from the middle and eating them while they're traveling down the road. Technically, that's how you harvest grain, and so they're breaking Sabbath laws. And Jesus turns to them, and he says, Hey, don't you realize that the Sabbath, that man was not made for the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was made for man? In other words, you don't exist to obey laws. The laws exist to give you peace and safety and purpose. That is why laws exist. I always try to remind my kids of this so that they can see when laws are unjust. I try to, we pull up to a stop sign and I say, hey, what's the point of a stop sign? So you'll stop your car. Why do we stop our car? So that you don't get a ticket. No, 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 no. That's man serving the law. Why do we stop our cars? Ooh, I know, yes. Uh, uh, you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, so that we don't wreck our cars. I'm like, yes. Laws exist to keep us safe. So when laws no longer keep people safe, when laws are no longer accomplishing what they were meant to do, those laws are useless and they're actually oppressive. And so we should fight against those laws. This is the same thing, and Jesus is explaining that the Sabbath law is not something that is meant to oppress you. The Sabbath law is meant to serve you. It is meant to give you life. It is meant to inspire you and fill you up. 
Um, and so Paul, in light of Jesus, understands what Jesus is doing with the law here. And, and Paul, um, sorry, it's behind the drum set. I'll read it. It says, it says that it's Paul amended the law in light of Christ in Romans 14, uh, 1 through 17, to be any day. All that is required is that you must rest as a human being. That is what is required of the Sabbath. In American culture, it's very much like Roman culture. I talk about this all the time. At some point, I've had somebody suggest, like, could you do, like, a sermon on, like, the similarities between Rome and America? And I, that, that'd, be like, that'd be like a series. Like, there's so much that we sort of have inherited and constructed our existence as a nation on that we see in the Roman Empire, right down even to our architecture. The, the way that we live is very, very Roman. And Rome had a, a, a rhythm of life that was secular. It was unique um, in their world. Um, and it wasn't even so much a rhythm. It was more of a trajectory. Here's the rhythm of Rome. Here was their, here was their life. Here was their existence. Here's how they functioned. It was up and to the right, bigger and stronger and more and more all the time, always getting bigger and better and greater. They were the greatest. Also, we are the greatest, right? Like, like this is what they were. Then there's very few nations in history that actually thought of themselves like this, but we are one and they were one. Um, and they, tra- they the, everything was about producing more and more, getting bigger and stronger all the time. This, this mindset has been adopted in churches um, to where when I was growing up, I would hear the phrase, if your church isn't growing, it's dying because things that are alive are growing. This is consumerist. This is Roman. Um, this is, and what happens is, um, I, I know, believe it or not, I know a few pastors, and what happens is they have these Easter services that are like impressive and they're big, and the next year they've got to be bigger, and the next year they've got to be bigger. So it starts off as one thing, it gets into another thing, and eventually there's helicopters dropping eggs from the top of the building, and they're like, what are we going to do now? Two helicopters? Yeah, two. And eventually there's not enough airspace for all these helicopters that are dropping eggs on the people, and they're spending all their money. They're like, next year let's blow up the building. And like... <laughs> It doesn't end. And eventually one, day, one year you're going to let the people down. And they're not, you're not going to meet their expectations that you have set them up. And, and believe it or not, what you attract people with is what you're attracting them to. And so you're, they're demanding more and more and more and more from you. This is not just a church thing. This is your, this is your work. This is your bosses. This is our, our community, our society. This is our economy. Um, nowhere... Um, was this more well, well understood than by the Jewish people? Um, the Jewish mindset, um, in the Jewish mindset, this was one of the ways, this up and away, always up and to the right thing. This was one of the ways that you recognized oppressive cultures. This was actually one of the ways that you recognized oppression beginning to grow. This is what it start, how it started, and this is what it began uh, to look like. It was a hopeless future. There's no way out. There's no ability to stop, or you might fall irreparably behind. There's no future rest save for the sweet release of death one day. Like, there is no way out of this, and all it leads to is you will let people down. This is how businesses function. This is how all of it kind of goes, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And nowhere is this more well-defined than in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus starts with an empire that is growing and that is expanding, and that empire just happens to be built by bricks, one brick at a time. It's built on the back of slave labor, um, one brick at a time. And God's people are the slaves, and God's people are making those 
bricks. So it starts off, God's people are living sort of in the land of, of Egypt. That a lot of them moved there because there was a famine, and that's where you could get some grain. And one of them just happened to be the Pharaoh at this time. There's a whole story about it in the Bible. You should read it. Um, and, then, uh, and they're there living amongst the people. But as the empire grows, they need more and more labor. And eventually they realize there's this whole group of people, the Israelites, that are not us. They're living among us. And they enslave the Israelites, and they put them to work as the brick makers and as the people who work in the fields. And they use them to build their monuments, to build their pyramids, to build their statues, their, their, their temples to Ramses, all these things. Um, and every day they make bricks day in and day out. And they had been doing so for generation upon generation upon generation. And then one day, one of them sort of gets free during this um, terrible time where these children are being killed. One of them gets free. He's put in a basket and floated down the river, ends up living in the palace, is raised in the palace, and is one day taking a nice fanciful walk in the wilderness. Um, and he comes across this bush that is burning, but it's not consumed. And suddenly the fire bush starts talking to him. It's like, hey, take your shoes off. He's like, yo, what? And there's a, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. The God is present here. And so he takes his shoes off and the bush starts talking to him. And the bush says this. It says, it says the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have, learned, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Now the word crying, I heard them crying out, is this word sa'ach, and this word sa'ach is a Hebrew word that basically is also a question. It's not just a description of what they're doing. It's a question. It's, also, it's a question that sort of says, do you see what we're going through? Do you see what is happening to us? Where is our justice? Are we, are we invisible? Because obviously, if, if you could see us, you would do something because I can't imagine another person seeing what we're going through and not doing something about it. So you must not see us. And so we're crying out so that you will see us and do something about it. Um, and the whole idea is this. For generations, the Israelites had been in bondage. They had been forced to make bricks day in and day out, up and to the right, more and more and more, always producing no end in sight. Um, and they would wake up in the morning and they would make bricks and they would talk about how my great-grandfather woke up in the morning and made bricks his whole life until he died. And then my grandfather made bricks his whole life until he died. And my father made bricks and I make bricks and my son will make bricks and my grandson will make bricks and my great-grandson is probably going to make bricks. This is all we do. This is all we've ever done. No days out, no days off. This is what we do. We wake up in the morning and we make the bricks, and it's hopelessness, and it's oppression. It's up and to the right. And perhaps you felt this, and it doesn't seem to be a way out. Um, the pain of hopelessness, it's, it's a stronger kind of pain than other pains. The pain of hopelessness is the pain that it doesn't go away. It's a pain that hurts exponentially more because you know, oh, 50 years from now, I'll still feel this pain. And so what I'm feeling right now, I will feel this evening and tomorrow and next year and 20 years from now, I will feel this same pain. And it's this hopelessness because there's this other type of pain, this pain of, um, this pain of hopefulness where you go through something to get something else. That's a pain that is endurable. Uh, the pain of childbirth. I've seen my wife give birth to three children, and we had this conversation uh, before the first child came, and I said, aren't you, aren't you worried? And I remember her saying, no, I'm, I'm not, because here's the thing. It, it's, it looks painful, and I'm scared, but, but on the other end of it, you have a baby. You have life, and it's this joy, and it's this gift that you receive, and so I'm not, it's, it's, it's endurable because there is something to come of it. 
There is pain that is hopeless and there's pain that is hopeful. And there are two different kinds of pain. Uh, those of you who are raising children, it's exhausting. Uh, and it's it oftentimes painful and it doesn't end. But you know deep down inside that this is heading somewhere. It will not always be like this. Tomorrow will not be like today. Uh, there is a moving forward and eventually... Um, our hope is that we will do this right and that we will have these fully grown, well-developed human beings that are great and our friends. Um, it is heading towards something. Those of you who are doing graduate work, it is hard and you're exhausted and you have these theses to write and all this, and, um, and, but you know it's going to end, hopefully well. You know it's going to end, so, and so you can endure this. But the hopelessness is what happens when, when there's no way out, when today is just like yesterday and tomorrow will be just like today, and the next day after tomorrow will be just like tomorrow until the day that you die. And what you are doing now, you will do the day before you die. That is hopelessness, that is oppression, that is pain, and that is suffering. Um, and so the text says, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields. Not only that, as time went on, they experienced the squeeze. We have to produce more, but all we have is this, so we have to produce more with less. And so we're going to cut some ingredients, we're going to cut some costs, we're going to order from other places, we're going to give you guys less ingredients to do your thing with, and we're going to produce more and more and more. You can overlay this on top of a lot of modern economies today. Just don't give the people at the bottom their raises. We have to make more. We have to make it work. We have to go farther and farther. And this is all in the Jewish mindset. This is evil. I mean, it's funny. You can see, even in our economy, if you go back and look at the economy in the 80s and, and sort of the shifts that were happening um, in economic theory, you can see some things. You see there used to be this mindset that, that a company was in a community and they had a responsibility to that community because all the people in that community worked in that company and so they cared about the community and they took up, they did parks and hospitals and education and they took care of people. But somewhere around the 80s, you can watch this happen and you can read a lot of articles about it. What happens is um, they, there is this argument that pops up that no, 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 a company's, only, um, a company's only responsibility is to their shareholders, not to the community. That is, that is their responsibility. The people whose actual money are going into this company those are the ones. Because the people in the community, their money isn't going to the company. In fact, they're taking money out of the company because you pay them. So your responsibility is to the shareholders. And we've separated our common connection with each other. And we've laid all this on the altar of up and to the right. And we must produce more and more and more. And it begins to feel a lot like Egypt. Um... And so the rhythm of the empire is up and to the right. Maybe a vacation sprinkled here or there. Maybe a Christmas party. But all in all, up and to the right. And perhaps you felt this. Um, a sacred rhythm is different from a secular rhythm. That is a secular rhythm. It's no rhythm at all. The sacred has a rhythm. And God has built it into everything. If you look at the world, you look at the seasons, you look at creation, you, you see there is, there is rhythm, there is breath, there is uh, in and out breathing, there is the seasons, there's winter and spring, and it, everything sort of falls and pauses and the snow falls and everything sort of appears dead and quiet and then, and then, and then life starts to come up again. There, e there is these cycles, there's these phases that the world moves through. And so the first thing that God does when he brings these people out of Egypt is he takes them to Sinai. And at Sinai, he gives them this gift that no other society in the world had ever had, 
what had ever had before, and it was called Sabbath. It was, it was a weekly rhythm of how you will live your life. And every six days, you're going to stop, and you're going to have this seventh day of rest. Um, you're not going to work. You're not going to gather. You're not going to travel. You are not going to um, try to put yourself ahead of others. You're not going to try to gain, gain um, status on those days. And in fact, the punishments for taking advantage of the Sabbath, for working on the Sabbath to getting ahead of everyone else, was incredibly harsh. Because it said something about who you think God is and what the world is like and what other people actually are doing here. And so the Sabbath was kept holy. And it's funny because if you read books like, the, like you read the Talmud, you, you, there's all these rabbinic arguments. Um, one of them comes from, uh, about the Sabbath, one of them comes from a book of Isaiah. Um, I believe it's chapter 37. Uh, and the argument that they pull out of the book of Isaiah is that there is, there is one command on the Sabbath. There's one thing that you must do. And when you read the books, it literally says the one thing you were commanded to do on the Sabbath was enjoy the marriage bed. You were literally commanded to have sex on the Sabbath. Like that's, so like there's this way that you were meant to be. In other words, like connect, live life, um, enjoy yourself, enjoy your family, enjoy those that you love. Um, this is what life is about. And the rest of this is sort of interruptions of what life is really supposed to be like. This is a picture of a world made whole again. The people aren't working. There is love. There is intimacy. The animals aren't working. Everything is at peace. Um, this is how they were commanded to live. So this command to Sabbath was God's way of telling his people that there is always hope because the day of justice will come. No matter how bad today is, no matter how hard the work is, two days from now there will be a day of rest and connection. I will play with my kids. I will love my spouse. I will be present. I will eat. And I will be happy. We're going to sing songs. We're going to sit around the fire. That is what they were always looking forward to. And the whole point of this was pointing forward to, hey, just however this is right now, this is how, this is, this is justice. This is how the world is going to be. This is what we're working towards for everyone. This is how life is meant to be lived. There will not always be someone above you demanding more bricks of you. Open your eyes and look ahead. Sit on the Sabbath and be and look ahead. There will not always be somebody telling you what to do and demanding more and more and more and squeezing more out of you. The Sabbath points to release, redemption, reconciliation, and eventually it actually points to Jesus. The Jews used to call it uh, the age that is to come, the day when everything would be made right. Now, when I was a kid, uh, I was always, I had all these questions about, so I sort of was raised with this sort of Gnostic view of Christianity, that the whole point of Christianity was like, we pray this prayer and our souls are saved, and then eventually everything that is physical and tangible um, is going to be destroyed, and we're going to be disembodied spirits flying away. That's Plato. That's not Jesus. Uh, and we would spend all of eternity in, I guess, I, I watched um, All Dogs Go to Heaven a lot, so it's kind of like that, right? Um, you can never go back, Charlie. And so, like, you're in heaven, you're at the clouds, you're getting little wings and stuff. And I asked my parents, like, what's it going to be like? And they're like, well, it's going to be like church all the time. I was like, no. <laughs> I went to a Southern Baptist church. It wasn't even the kind where they waved the hankies and ran and yelled. Like, it was the, it was the, did you just ra raise your hand? Oh, you're scratching your head. Okay, that's allowed. If your hands go above your head. You're charismatic, and they're demon-possessed. That's how now a pastor in a charismatic denomination. Surprisingly, did you know that? CMA? Anyways. Um, 
So this is, and this was the idea I had. Oh, that, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to, we're just going to have church all the time. Open your hymnal now to page 5,238. And we're going to sing that song now. And that sounds intensely boring. That is not how the Jewish people pictured the world made whole in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was the great hope of all of humanity when the king would sit on the throne and everything would be made right again. And the people, they could finally live. They didn't have to wear swords and shields. They didn't have to build city walls. Things weren't difficult. They could enjoy their life. They could, they could do the work that they loved. They could love their families. And this is all they were looking forward to, a peaceful existence in the world, a world made right again. They just wanted to live and enjoy the, the things of life. Um, and this is what all of this was pointing to. This is what the Sabbath was for them. And so many of you have unknowingly stumbled into a form of slavery and exile from the way that things should be. Every day for you is so busy that you have no time for rest and you don't even realize it. Um, but this hopelessness is building and sort of in the back of your mind and it's starting to rise to the surface. And here's the thing. You were not meant to experience life like this. A sacred rhythm is, is very different. It is up and down, it is on and off. A sacred rhythm um, things that are healthy are on and they are off again. Um, they rise and they fall like, like, like a sound wave, right? Like a light bulb that stays on all the time burns out. A car that is running all the time runs out of gas, falls apart. You, if you are on all the time, you're going to burn out. This is not sustainable. Your body was not created to do that. You were not created to always produce more and more and more. Sabbath is the day when all of the other days receive their energy. When you are able to rest, to turn off, um, then the other days are more alive, they're more passionate, they're more creative, they're more life-changing. And, and we, look at our, we look in the mirror and we think, like, I, I can't take a day off because I've, I've got all this stuff I've got to do, I've got to accomplish for my family. You don't think if you took that time to practice the mercy of God and just be present and fill yourself, fill yourself up and took that time away. You don't think your work would be better and that your family would be happier? Try it. They will be. Um, one of the problems with, with this whole like Israelite and bondage exile thing that they felt is that they felt completely worthless. They felt absolutely worthless. One of the reasons the Sabbath is so important is because it is a day where your worth has nothing to do with how many bricks that you produce. Nothing to do with that. It's the only way you can actually learn that. Um, it is a day when you are, you, you are reminded that you are simply, you know, as they say, you're a human being, not a human doing. Like, this is a way of reminding ourselves of all of this. And one of the central tenets of the Christian faith is that we do not derive our worth from our own actions, good or bad. Again, when people are really successful and are on their way up, we try to remind each other and them, that's not where my worth is found. I don't need, I don't need all that. That's not where I find my worth in stockpiling wealth, and blah, 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 blah. And, and we're talking up, but we rarely talk down and say, and, and by the way, for all the people um, who are carrying the weight of the atrocities that they've committed in their youth or in their adulthood, like, that is not what defines you. And Sabbath is how we find that out. When we come together as a community, and practice the presence of God in silence and solitude and, and Sabbathing. 
Humans have infinite worth, not because of what we do, but because of, of the place that we were created to inhabit. We were created to be the representatives of God, living statues made in God's image, the Imago Dei. It's, it's not a description of how people look. A lot of people say, well, they're, they're made in the image of God, so they're important. Yes, that's true, but that's not a description of like how, how they look. That is, is, the Imago Dei is a vocation. It's an office that we hold. We are the presence of God in this world. We're like those little statues made and put in the ancient temples. When you look at them, you know what the God looks like. That is us, but we're living statues, living stones. And the world looks at us. They should know what Jesus is like. And so it is an office. It's a vocation. Most people, they can't stop. Deep down inside, like they, they want to say they can't. Yeah, I, could, I, could, I could take a day off if I want to. I just, I really do. My work. They can't stop because I think a lot of people, they're afraid if they stopped that they would just die or something. Like they're afraid that like, they're afraid that, that, that they'll lose. If they stop progressing, if they stop even for a day, they'll lose everything they've worked for. Um, afraid of, they're afraid of what they'll find inside themselves. I caught myself a couple weeks ago wandering around the house like looking for something to do when I should have just really just sat down. I had been going all day. And my brain was like, keep, keep going. Find something to fix. There's broken stuff around here. Find it, fix it. And I'm, and I'm thinking about this. I'm like, it's happening. Like, that's the feeling. Like, I'm glad I felt this. I can describe it. Like, this is the feeling. I'm, I'm afraid I'll be accused of being lazy. And so are you. Lazy is not God's word. That is not how God describes you at all. Um, silence and solitude and Sabbath and silent reflection. Do you have any idea how foreign uh, these ideas are for most people? Incredibly foreign ideas. They might have to reckon with the deep cavern of emptiness in the depths of their souls. They're, these are the practices that could actually obliterate their entire sense of self, um, the self that's rooted in their actual performance. Because some of you have, have, have accomplished a lot. You've accomplished a lot. And the fear that you wouldn't be associated with what you've accomplished is like, is deafening. And so you have to keep accomplishing. You can't stop. Because you think everyone is defining you by your accomplishments. And by the way, most of them are, but God is not in the church, should not be. And most of us, when we get a moment of silence by ourselves, we think you have to do more. You, you must justify your existence. You must produce some bricks. How many bricks did you produce today? Nothing. How can you sleep at night? Get up in the middle of the night and make some bricks. However that looks, whatever your brick is that you're making. Like, I had a, I, there was a pastor I used to know, and he told me about this experience once where he was like, he was doing this thing where it's bigger and bigger every year. He's not a pastor anymore. That's how that ends. Uh, he, it was bigger and bigger and bigger every year. And, and at one point, he, his, uh, his elder team, they're like, you need to go see a counselor, like see a therapist. And so they sent him to see a therapist and he walks in, he's talking to the therapist, first time ever talking to him. And the guy goes, what can I do for you? What's going on? He goes, well, I'm just, I don't know. I'm really just trying to make sure everything doesn't fall apart. And the therapist looks at him and says, okay, well, I'm here to make sure that that's exactly what happens. This all needs to fall apart. This shouldn't be happening. Whatever sent you here shouldn't exist. It needs to fall apart. And he's just broke down. Because he knows. He knows he was not meant to live like this. The Israelites didn't have a message of Jesus. They were pre-Jesus. But they had this prototype it was, of Jesus sort of thing. It, it was called the Day of Atonement. 
Um, and the Day of Atonement, and you can read about it in Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 19, it's this day when all of their sort of spiritual work would be taken care of, right? Like the priest, the way it describes it is the priest finishes the work on the Day of Atonement, and the priest has been working all year, offering sacrifices, the people are bringing sacrifices, and he's doing all the work. And there comes a Day of Atonement, and when he finishes his work, he walks out on the steps of the temple, and he sits down. And the people start cheering. They're like, yeah, he sat down. Not hard. Like, I, I just get a chair and just sit down and let everybody cheer. Like, that's the work that they were doing. Like, their spiritual work that they had been doing all year, there came a moment where it ended. It just dropped off to zero. And the sins were gone. And there's nothing else to do. And it says the people would sing and they would shout and they would dance. And they, it describes it as it, the earth would shake with the joy and the freedom that these people would feel. And so when it was all over, no more work was necessary. They could rest in the peace of God. And so these Israelites knew that God's most urgent desire was to give them this hope. This hope. This is what the Sabbath is meant to represent, this hope. And I've talked to many of you who aren't feeling that hope. And you, you need to lean into that. Something needs to fall apart. Something's broken. Whatever you're afraid of happening, maybe it needs to happen. Because maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it's too much for your identity. I also want to talk about the Sabbath as this subversive, revolutionary idea for all of us. Not just an individual thing. Because oftentimes, we're so hungry. We're an individualized society. So when we talk about things like spiritual gifts, and Sabbath, it's all about us personally. So the Sabbath is, yes, it's a day for you to be filled up so that you can pour yourself out. However, it's also the Sabbath is a lens through which we should look at the world and our society. It is a ruler by which we can judge justice. Um, because here's the thing. Um, as we, the people of God, as we think of ourselves, we should think of ourselves communally. God's people were a nation. They were a kingdom. They had a king. They had citizens. We are as well. We are not first and foremost Americans or whatever country you're from. We are Christians. We have a king and a kingdom. We are citizens of this kingdom. Our citizens of our kingdom, other citizens, are in every country in the world, and we all have one king. And we carry the flag of God. His banner over us is love. We are a kingdom. So we have a communal sort of, we have an economy. We have a, uh, a kingdom. We have a way that we are supposed to dwell, and that should be represented here in our sort of, in our small local body. But as we, uh, uh, the people of God, are building our economies, as we shape our own businesses that we run, as we employ other images of God to work with us, I like to say with us, not for us. Um, as we interact with the economy at large in the worlds in which we exist, Sabbath should shape how we do these things. And so, uh, in one sense, Sabbath is something that in our society, this is going to hit some of you a little hard, Sabbath is something in our society for the privileged. Do you realize when you take a day off, you are feeling the benefits of that privilege. Because there are many, many, many people all around you every day who cannot take a day off, who are stuck in this system. 
The average working poor, like the children of Israel, are enslaved by a system that we are actually oftentimes helping to create and prop up. They, they must always produce more and more with less and less and less. And a day off, a day of rest, could spell ruin and disaster for their entire family. No groceries, no laundry. Um, many growing up today can speak, actually, of their life the same way the Egyptians used to speak of their life. Uh, my great-grandfather lived in poverty his whole life and worked until the day that he died. My grandfather and my father lived in poverty. They were poor. They worked every single day, struggled to get by, to put food on the table for all of us, and then, and then they worked until the day, the day before they died, they were at work. Um, I, will li- I am in poverty now, and my children will live in poverty, and they don't see a way out, and it's very much sort of an exodus story. Um, without the Moses. And many today can speak of life the same way that the Israelites did. They don't have the resources, the education, the access to safe and clean environments that a lot of us have. There's no talk of retirement. They will work until the day that they die. So when we sit here oftentimes and talk about our retirement plans and our 401ks and our 403bs and our Roth IRAs and this and that, that is luxury, that is, that is privilege, and there are people around us that have no way of accessing these things in their, in their life, in their foreseeable future. Many of the Torah Sabbath commands are actually intended to guide them as they build their society to keep this from happening. That is what a lot of these commands are about. And so they have their lives together. And once a week, every one of them gets a day of rest and love and intimacy and eating and laughing and singing. Once a week, they get a Sabbath. Also, once a year, they have a day of atonement when their spiritual work is done. The priest sits down. By the way, Hebrews references this, and he talks about Jesus, and he says, all this stuff you think you need to do for God. The the priest finished the work, Jesus, and he sat down. You are free. Um, And then every seven years, they had to take actually a year off from farming the land. And the seventh year, they, they could not plant their crops in the field. They had to take the time off and do something else. So that, the, the danger was um, that they would become more and more wealthy and more and more disconnected from each other because, again, um, oftentimes in societies, wealth is created to, in order to create unevenness between, relation, between human beings. And in the church, that was the opposite of what they used wealth for. They used wealth to create evenness. And so in the world, it's different. And the, the, the danger was that these Jewish people would make a lot of money farming, and it would get more and more money, and they would gather more and more money. Um, and then there's this warning in the book of Deuteronomy about, hey, woe, woe to you who, who buys house to property after property after property and attaches house to house to house until you live alone on the land. We hear this, and we're like, I'd love to live alone on the land. And they're like, that's actually a curse. You were meant to live in community with other people. Woe to you. Who's going to be there for you when you need it? You're alone. Your money isn't going to be there for you when you need that comfort. Um, and so one of the ways they solved this was, was they had this thing they called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, all debts would be canceled. This happened. All debts would be canceled. All land would go back to the people who originally owned it. Even if they were foolish with it and had lost all of it, it would be given back to them and say, let's try again. Let's wipe the slate clean. Let's start over. The whole point of this was just simply, you were not created to do this thing that you always do, and so we're going to put things in place to keep you from going that direction and keep God the center of all of it. 
And there is no way any of us would ever think that any of this is a good idea today. You could not convince 20 people to do this together. Because we have been discipled by the ways of the world. And these things have ramifications, right? And most of us are unwilling to endure them. And though we are free from the laws of Jubilee and all these things, and we know that. We know we read the Old Testament. We, we're not under this. We're free from this law. But though we are free from that law, we are not free from the responsibility behind those laws. Because again, Jesus said, those laws weren't created for these people to serve those laws. That's not the point. Those laws were created to ensure your peace and justice and happiness. To ensure you have everything that you need. To ensure that everyone can just live and be happy and enjoy each other, and enjoy life. This is why these laws were here. So though, though we are free from these laws, we are not free from the responsibility we have to each other to, like Christ, make the burden light for others who carry it so heavily. So here's some thoughts that we as a church can do, that you as individuals can do, as a family can do, as a house church can do. Maybe provide Sabbath. Find a way to provide Sabbath for others. Pay others well if they work for you. Pay them well. Provide them what they need to stay healthy. Um, when things are, are well financially, use the profits to create joy and peace for those under you. Remind them that they are human beings, not human doings, that their worth to you is intrinsic. It is not dependent upon how many bricks and widgets they can produce. That they have worth because they exist, because they were created in the image of God. Look for those who need release and rest in your community. Try to find a way to grant it. Start a retirement fund for a single mother. She probably doesn't have one. She's pouring all of her money into her children and not into herself. And if you see it as the presence of Jesus, it is now your responsibility to somehow find a way to give her the Sabbath that you get to enjoy. Find a way to make these things happen. Help others find that Sabbath hope that God has given to you. Sabbath is a spiritual act of resistance. It's looking at the world and saying, nope, I disagree with what you're doing. I don't like where this is heading. Up and to the right, that enslaves people. We were created to order God's world to take care of God's world, to be the presence of God in this world so that when people look at us, they know what God is like. And that is how we must order our lives. And so we as a church, as a community, as small gatherings and house churches, as families, we must find ways to provide this hope for each other. This is what the scriptures talk about when it says we are a city on a hill. The world should be looking at us and saying, how in the world do they do this? How can we capture just a smidge of this? And though, and though they can't have the kingdom without our king, they will be drawn in. They will see it. And they will feel the benefits of it. And they will long for it because they will see justice and mercy represented right there in their faces. And then they will look at their king and their kingdom and they will look at our king and our kingdom. And they will say, I want that. And they will defect from their kingdom. And they will join us. And we live in a kingdom that will have no end. And so, 
what we are given is this, is this verse. Every time God appears to his people, usually when they're interacting with other people, he tells them, remember, you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The reason he is reminding them of this is because this is their vocation to the world, to be a blessing to the world around them. And you and I, as us, together, collectively, as the presence of God, when we see others who are caught in the system, who are enslaved, who don't see the worth that they actually have, who are exhausted, but you can see it in their eyes, you can feel it in their presence. There's this vibe that is put off that they're just wrapped up in it. God looks at you and God says, remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And you are now one of us. And so now as the presence of God, this is your role. So the same way that God brought me out of all of this, I want to bring you out of all of this. And we should bring each other out of all of this. And this should work its way outside of these walls, bringing this to the world and showing them what the world is supposed to be like. And so practice Sabbath. Find a way to work this in. Not just for yourself. Practice Sabbath with your families. Practice Sabbath with your friends. Provide Sabbath for those who do not have the privilege of Sabbath. Find a way to make this happen. Let people know that the future tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. Our communion servers, why don't you go gather the elements and spread around the room. And uh, as we move towards communion, I want you to ponder sort of all of these things, the ways that you have found your identity, the ways that you have been discipled by the world and by the empire, and that you need to be sort of undiscipled in that way and re-discipled in the path of Jesus who sees what God is taking the world towards and he's using us to do it. And ask yourself how you can live this way and take part in it all. And then come on to the table. The communion table is the place where we're all made equal. Uh, there's, there's broken bread, there's, 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 uh, there's wine. And so you take a piece of bread and you dip it in the glass and you, you take the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ poured out for you inside of yourself. Be filled up. And this is how we should live collectively to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us forward into the future that you have for us. Help us to be a city on a hill. Let the world compare what, what they have with what we have. And may they see you and your kingdom. Kingdom of justice and mercy and forgiveness and evenness. Where we all recognize in humanity, God is in that that we are in the image of God. Help us to care for our brothers and sisters around us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. If you need prayer, uh, right through these doors in the back, there will be somebody there to pray with you, to pray for you. Um, again, I have these cards up here for Governor Bill Lee, for those of you who feel called to take part in this. Take some time, talk to Jesus.